This is Trade Policy Comments with Christopher Fjellner and guests on the latest in trade. Here with me today, I have a good friend of mine, Peter Chase. Peter is a well-known figure in both the trade policy scene here in Brussels, but also in the US. And you're with uh, the German Marshall Fund now. I am indeed. And thank you very much for having me, Christopher. This is fun. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. The first time I met you, you were a vice president of the US Chamber of Commerce, I think. Correct. And spent many years there. But before that, you have a, a long service as a diplomat representing the US. Yeah, no, I worked for the US Department of State, for the US government, for the American people for 30 years between 1980 and 2010. I figured 30 years was a good time to change. But more importantly, I've been working on transatlantic relations, transatlantic economic relations for almost 20 years. And I want to stay here in Brussels and continue that work. And working with the US Chamber of Commerce, which is a large business advocacy organization, mm was actually a perfect way to continue, in a sense, public service. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to meet you now and actually to discuss transatlantic relations right now is because both Stockholm and Brussels and almost everywhere I go right now, everybody's talking about trade relations with the US, what will happen and what is a Trump world in the area of trade. So let me shoot off with asking you one question. As a trade policy guy, after the US elections, how do you feel? It's interesting. In Europe, as well in a large part of the United States, people looked at Mr. Trump as, who is this man? And he ran a race. You should actually ask him how he feels. But the interesting thing is, this is how democracy works. Yeah. You know, we went from George W. Bush to Barack Obama, And now we're moving to Mr. Trump. And the interesting thing about his election is that it appears that a large number of people who haven't voted for a long time came to the polls. So whether or not he's your guy, Mm. he now represents the American people. Mm. How do I feel? I feel it's going to be interesting. He's a gentleman who talks a lot and talks very extemporaneously. That would be a very nice way of putting it. (laughs) Impulsively, some people might say. He will find an interesting lesson about the importance of the words of the President of the United States. Words matter, especially in foreign affairs. And I think he often talks to targeted audiences. Mm. But also on Twitter to everybody. Precisely. But not just on Twitter, even in speech remarks. He'll go and give his prepared remarks and then he'll go off prepared remarks. And you hear very different. Anything can happen. (laughs) Anything can happen. And he needs to start thinking carefully that words he uses will have consequence. But trade policy wise, because I hear a lot of people are concerned and worried here in Europe maybe in other places of the world as well, of how does he view Russia, what will be the future of NATO. But a lot of the discussion here, it's almost as it sparked more interest to trade policy in general, because suddenly people start to realize, oh, the U.S. is born trade partner, and, and what happens if the U.S. decides to divert to protectionism now as a consequence of him? Because he's been very vocal on trade policy. He's been very vocal on trade policy, but the question is, what has he meant? Mm. I'm not sure he knows. He is not anti-trade. No. Okay, and sometimes his remarks, I'm going to tear up TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. People say that that means he's anti-trade. I don't think he's anti-trade at all. He is someone who believes very strongly in making the economy strong. Mm. When he looks at trade, 
he does it in a very mercantilist fashion. He focuses on U.S. exports and doesn't think in terms of the way the entire economy works and how it benefits as much from imports no. as from exports. Our jobs benefit from imports mm. as well as exports. The United States no longer has a clothing industry, no. very, very small, mm. but we have 4 million people employed in the whole distribution and logistics network of yeah. buying and importing and selling clothing as well. And that's just when an end product is coming in, as opposed to all the components. The yeah. vast majority of our trade now is components, including with Europe, back and forth across the Atlantic numbers of times, mm. just to make an end product either in Europe or in the United States. He's going to have to come up with the reality of this. I think that much of his trade picture mm. is colored by China. Mm. I think he feels that China is not a fair trader. Mm. And that sense of unfairness is something he wants to tackle. How big a difference is it really between him and other nominees and former presidents? Because during this presidential race, none of the candidates... Clinton didn't sound like my trade person. And if I go back and try to remember how Barack Obama sounded 2008, you know... Is it really that much a difference between the rhetorics of Trump and the rhetorics that Clinton was trying and that Obama did? You're absolutely correct that a lot of people, including the three you were talking about, when they were running for president, they basically have all made the distinction between fair trade and free trade. Mm. And I think that's something that you hear in Europe as well, yeah. when there's a sense that someone doesn't have the same labor standards, they don't have the same environmental standards, that imposes additional costs, somehow it's unfair. And if you're standing up for the American worker, you want it to be fair trade. And even Hillary, when she talked, yeah. she said, well, I want to make sure this trade deal is good for the American worker. It's not unreasonable to say that, but I think their understanding of what a trade deal is mm. changes over time. Their understanding of what the U.S. economy is changes as they learn more as president. Mr. Trump was different in that during a large part of that campaign, he was more expressly and more colorfully anti-trade, anti-imports, anti-unfair, you know, those Chinese people, those Mexican people, they're stealing our jobs. I think he used language that wasn't used by a lot of other candidates. My perception when listening to Hillary Clinton or when I listened to Barack Obama 2008 was that, okay, I hear what you say, but I don't believe you'll do it. Now, there's a lot of people that normally says we don't believe what presidential candidates say in the campaign. They actually think that Trump is different, that he will probably do what he says compared to the others that normally just says one thing and does another. The interesting thing about Mr. Trump as a candidate mm. is that he said a lot of things. Yeah. In all uh, directions. In all directions. A lot of things that there's a number of, I guess the best way of putting it is contradictions. Mm. So, for instance, if one of the things that motivates him on trade is a sense that China mm. is not a fair trader. The Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which includes 11 countries other than the United States, including Japan and Australia yeah. and New Zealand and Malaysia and Singapore but and Vietnam. But not China. But not China. And it was created mm. in part without China to attract China into a rules-based system yeah that reflected more traditional, uh, a stronger view of the importance of good trade rules. Mm. And China's not yet there. So many people saw this as something that was to push China yeah. in the right direction. 
So why would Mr. Trump then give up an agreement mm. that, number one, is an FTA with Japan? Yeah. With very good market access that's been won for American, particularly agricultural producers. Mm. Why would he give up a renegotiation of NAFTA? Because the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement also renegotiates NAFTA and makes it a much better agreement, including in energy. Interesting, because a lot of people seem to have missed that. Including Mr. Trump. Yeah, because the NAFTA countries are a part of TPP as well. Correct. And it is a significant additional mission on both sides. And in fact, through the Asia-Pacific region and including the countries of Latin America that are part of it. So I think it was easy in a campaign to say, well, I'm against TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. It's a bad agreement. I didn't negotiate it. But then if you sit down and actually read it and read what it does and read the incredibly strong labor protections that are built into that, the incredibly strong environmental protections, Mm. none of which places a burden on the United States, Mm. but which makes it fairer Mm. because Vietnam actually accepts trade unions. As part of TPP. It's actually a huge thing. And there's very strong disciplines on state-owned enterprises. Mr. Trump, I'm sure, has no clue that that's in there. When he becomes president, as more and more people brief him, Senator McCain, a Republican, just wrote an op-ed piece saying, don't get rid of TPP, Mr. Trump, because guess what? It actually promotes American interests. As he learns, will he have a different view? Maybe. But you sound more hopeful than I thought, because when I asked you, how do you feel? I thought trade policy orientated guys can't be anything but worried. But I hear glimmers of hope here that maybe TPP, that everybody declares dead after Trump, maybe that'll come around anyhow. Look, it's been signed. Mm. The Japanese have ratified it. Lower House has ratified it. The upper house period of time is about over. So pretty soon there will be a formal Japanese ratification Mr. Trump will have the decision, Mm. do I formally submit this to Congress for its approval or not? He may choose not to do that. Mm. He may say, well, maybe I'll negotiate my own free trade agreement Mm. with Japan. Japanese have already basically said, look, we've just negotiated a free trade agreement with you. It was a lot of grief. We've taken a lot of political hits. Why would we do it again? So they may say, it's this deal or no deal. He's going to have to figure out where the balance of benefits is for the United States. And it gets, Christopher, not just to him as a candidate. It gets to the narrative about trade Mm. that you see here in Europe, that we see in the United States, about TPP, but not about TTIP. If you actually look at these agreements, Mm. if you actually take the time to read and them. try to read and understand. You don't have to read every word. Every single government that is part of an agreement summarizes the chapters mm. in very easily understandable language. So if you read CETA, if you read the Government of Canada or the European mm. Commission's explanation of the deal, you begin to realize, my goodness, this actually does some good things. Yeah. It's easy to be against a concept. Mm. But if you start peeling away, what is that concept? What does it really do? You start to think, hey, maybe that's not a bad deal. And maybe Mr. Trump also will end up there. But how much can he personally do or not do in the area of trade? Well, for instance, in the case of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, it is his prerogative as president to send this to Congress or not. Yeah. So he has 100% power over it. But can he kill existing trade agreements, for example? All treaties 
except until recently, the Treaty of European Union, actually have escape clauses. Yeah. They actually say you can renounce this treaty if you decide to do so. In the case of most trade agreements in the United States, there are implementing bills. Mm -hmm. So that bills that go through legislature, that go through the Congress. The one treaty I know that the United States has actually repudiated mm. was a treaty of friendship, commerce, and navigation with Russia, okay. which Congress mm. repudiated in 1911 because the Russians were abusing the right to regulate provisions uh. in it. I believe the president has the power to repudiate a treaty without congressional action. It has clearly not happened that often. It doesn't happen, no. no. But you also have to think about it. He's got power over TPP. He mm. just doesn't take it to the Congress. He could repudiate NAFTA. But yeah. that's not just Mexico. That's Canada. Canada as well. Because it's a treaty with both of them. Yeah. He can't just kind of one-sidedly repudiate it. There are huge costs, yeah. political costs, There would be huge economic costs. Real American workers would lose their jobs if these supply chains that have become so integrated were disrupted. Gone over a day. Yeah. Again, it's one thing to say, this doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. It's quite another to say, oh, these are the consequences of an action I would take as president of the United States. I'm optimistic that most people can learn. Yeah. We got a new Congress as well. Correct. What's your assessment of Congress? Do you think it's a more protectionist Congress now than it was before? Or do you think it's more free trade orientated Congress compared to earlier? Well, I think the first thing to think about in terms of the Congress is Mr. Trump was the Republican nominee, yeah. but he was running against the Republican Party establishment. On the eve of the election, virtually everyone, including in the Republican Party, yeah thought that Mr. Trump was not just going to lose, but that the Republican Party, which controls both the Senate and the House today, yeah. would definitely lose the Senate and could Possibly. really well yeah. lose the House. In fact, they did so much better than yeah. they anticipated that it's clear the congressional people in Washington, Republican Party, realizes that they owe something to Mr. Trump and his mm. winning strategy. So yeah. he won this game. Unconventionally, but he won. Mm. And he benefited them. So I think that for a first long time, they mm. will take their guidance from him. Mm. I, Even though they were skeptical in the run-up to the election. Correct. I would not say it's more protectionist or less protectionist. Okay. I don't feel that most Congress people ran on a trade policy platform. No. Now, when you read American newspapers, you hear a lot of gossip. It's almost like Kremlology about Mr. Trump's transitional team, who will be there, who will be not. How important do you think this transitional team is? What's interesting to me is that the U.S. trade representative mm. has not been named, nor has the U.S. Secretary of State, both of whom would be critically important in showing a direction. Just to take one step back, except the president, there are three main players, if I understand correctly. And please correct me if I'm wrong. USTR, US Trade Representative, is of course one. Then the Secretary of State, as you said, which would be like foreign minister of mm -hmm. a normal European country. And then you also have the Secretary of Commerce that plays a role. The Secretary of Commerce mm. does play a big role. But the lead on external trade... Mm is in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, which is a part of the executive office of the president. Okay. There's also another very, very important actor here, and that important actor is the Department of Agriculture, mm -hmm. and the other one is the Treasury Department. Mm -hmm. So those organizations are all critically important. The gentleman who's been 
named the Secretary of Commerce. Both he and the Secretary of Treasury, Mr. Mnuchin, mm. are businessmen. Yeah. Businessmen in general aren't anti-trade. No. They can often try to portray themselves as mm. being protecting American jobs. But what they're really protecting, of course, is their own company. Mm. And it may be against foreign competitors, but it may be against domestic yeah. competitors. And because they're businessmen, businessmen look for business opportunities yeah. wherever. 95% of the world's consumers are outside the borders of the United yeah. States. So it's really difficult to say, I don't like trade. There is one, though, businessman that I've heard that's a part of the transition team for U.S. trade representative, Dimikyu, mm-hmm. who is a steel guy. Yeah. Most of the time, businessmen tends to look at business opportunity rather than being against trade or protectionism. But Dimikyu, who is a steel guy, the steel sector is traditionally very protectionist, both here in Europe and the US, if I understood correctly, most of his team seems to be enforcement people. And it gives me at least a little bit of a worry to have a as being the, the driving force of the US trade representative, at least in the transitional team. There's no question that he has a very hard line specifically on China and mm. specifically in steel and specifically about China being an unfair trader on steel. And guess what? He's not far from wrong. The Chinese have used state subsidies to overbuild their steel capacity, and they're dealing with it to some extent by selling the product cheaply on the global market. The WTO world trade laws allow for looking at things like this. But there is a process in the United States where the Independent International Trade Commission and the Department of Commerce work together to say, is a company or is a state subsidizing a certain product? And if there is, by how much? And what do we need to do to level the playing field? And then you can introduce anti-dumping duties. Precisely. But I think the thing is, it's not USTR that does that. Okay. Okay, that's the Secretary of Mm. Commerce, the Commerce Department team. They make the determinations. They send it to the International Trade Commission who looks at whether or not there's harm Mm. and whether or not the suggested things to make things fair again are appropriate. That's different from what Mr. Trump says, well, I'm going to put a 45% duty on Mexican products or Chinese products or whatever. If you go through and win an anti-dumping or Mm. a countervailing duty case, you could have... Mm additional duties of that much for that thing in accordance with WTO rules. The important thing, I think, for Europeans, as well as for the rest of the world, will be to make sure that the U.S. government, the new government, plays by By the the rules. Yeah, the WTO rules. So if you were a civil servant in the U.S. Trade Representative's office, you wouldn't be that worried about the fact that you get in a transitional team of enforcement people from the steel industry, because... First of all, it's a transitional team, but secondly, it will probably end up balanced out by WTO law and other instruments. Well, USTR does have an enforcement role. It does look at particularly whether or not people are adhering to the international agreements, like the WTO or our free trade agreements. The USTR mentality, and I have worked in the US Trade Representative's office, they are very offensively minded. They look at what barriers other countries have to US exports, and then they try to go get them. And that's why we have trade agreements. Mm. We have trade agreements to take down barriers that others have erected when people consider the US and the European markets themselves as being pretty open. Normally it takes a while for a new administration to get into place. And I would be surprised if the new president would do a lot of things just when elected in the area of trade. 
Well, somebody uh, told me that normally the first two years the president never touches trade because he's so busy with internal things, national. I think it depends a lot on the specific circumstances. The trade representative's job mm. is to focus on trade. Yeah, from day one. From the day one. And in this case, Mr. Trump has made trade policy an important part of his platform. Yeah. So he's going to need to make decisions right away. I mean, he said that he would make decisions right away on TPP. He's already said what he wants the decision to be. And maybe it will be, in which case the U.S. trade representative is going to have to figure out what do I do next? Yeah. Do I go off and negotiate a new deal with Japan? Do I negotiate a new deal with Vietnam? Can I split this TPP up into a series of bilateral deals? That would be a very busy trade agenda yeah. if that's what they're going to do. And a lot of wasted time. But here in Brussels and Europe in general, most people are, of course, thinking about the transatlantic agenda, the transatlantic consequences. Correct. And therefore, of course, the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, mm -hmm. acronym TTIP, which have become a little bit toxic here in Brussels, TTIP. But I've tried to find any quotes by Mr. Trump or any indications of what to expect, but I can't find anything. What do you expect from the new administration when it comes to TTIP? Well, first, I've actually talked to some people who have done what you've done, and they've mm. actually gone through, and I don't think Mr. Trump has mentioned TTIP. Oh. I'm not even certain Mrs. Clinton mentioned mm. TTIP. And the reason is that in the United States, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership is not politically problematic at all, because the vast majority of Americans see trade between the United States and Europe as fair trade. Yeah. And because it's fair trade, it can be free. That's how Americans look at this. I think further, there's a better understanding that because the U.S. and European economies are so closely integrated with $5 trillion, $5 trillion of investment both ways, there's an understanding that if you actually make a trade agreement that helps integrate these mm. two, you actually increase the global competitiveness of yeah. European and American firms. So TTIP is not at all controversial. I can see that Mr. Trump might look at this agreement and say, well, we should do this deal with Europe. Mm. What I'm not certain about is whether or not, as you go through the components of it, what will be on offer will yeah. be sufficient for Europe. Mm. One of the areas where Europe wanted to get better access to the US market was public procurement. Yeah. It's quite likely that before trade will go Mr. Trump's infrastructure investment bills because that's what he really wants to do. He wants to build. He's a builder. Yeah. He wants to build roads and railroads and water. And if that happens, we would really have benefited from having TTIP already you, and having public procurement in it, there. Indeed, you would have done. Yeah. But it is quite likely that those bills will actually all have by american requirements. Mm. Mm. And if you had had TTIP, you could have protected yourself against them. Mm. That may make it more difficult for the Europeans to do this. Mr. Trump may very well say, well, all these labor, the sustainability provisions in TTIP, eh, I don't know if we need labor or environment, which is too bad because Europe and the United yeah. States in TTIP wanted to lead the way for the rest of the world. Oh, gee. It's all a missed opportunity. All that opposition to TTIP has yeah. actually gotten rid of yeah. an instrument that the United States and Europe could have used to push for mm. fairer trade. Mm. Mr. Trump may just not see those as being important, but that starts making the politics of TTIP here even more difficult than they already are. What do you think Europe has to do to be ready and prepared 
if or when the US administration is up on the saddle and want to get back to TTIP and want to discuss it again? To me, that's truly simple. Mm. You know, somehow here, the political debate about TTIP lost sight of the fact that these agreements, these contracts between two governments, that they negotiated to get something better than what they have today. And Europe needs to be really clear on what it wants to have a better relationship, to have a better access to the world's largest economy, because there are lots of benefits to TTIP that everyone just seems to have lost sight of in the public debate here. So, what I would do is I'd be clear on what Europe wants. And I have to tell you that people in Washington, hearing the noise here in Europe, Mm. as far as they can tell, It's possible that the trade negotiators in DG Trade know what they want, but the Americans looking at the debate in Europe say, but Europe Mm. and the Europeans and European politicians, they don't know what they want. And there has to be that sense that this is a trade agreement that's good for Europe. Mm. If you have that sense that it's good for Europe and that you know what you want, then you go off and you push for it. Mr. Trump says he's a good negotiator be better. Yeah. The conclusion of that would probably be that instead of worrying what Mr. Trump would mean for TTIP, yes. start, Bingo. start thinking about how you can win the debate back home and actually see to that you are well prepared and that you know what you want. Because in my experience from these last 12 years of following trade policy has been that for any negotiation to be successful, you need a clear mandate and a broad political backing. And if you have that, and of course some excellent negotiators as well, but then you normally end up pretty good. Correct. I think that you can actually do a very good deal with the United States, even with a Mr. Trump. But Europe will need to decide whether or not it wants to lead. And if it chooses not to lead, well, you live with the status quo. It's not too bad, but it could be a lot better. If the U.S. with Mr. Trump decides to backtrack on trade, decides to become more protectionist, not enter to new negotiations, not conclude the things they've already negotiated, then the world would probably need new impetus and new leaders, someone else who picks up the flag. <laughs> the sad thing that I see right now when I look around Europe is that Europe doesn't seem to be in any shape of claiming global leadership on trade. I agree with you. Mm. And it is a little bit sad. You know, there's a a trade agreement that you're considering now, the agreement between the EU and Canada. I've actually read most of the thing. It's actually a very good agreement. And yet it is highly disputed. Mm. I'm not talking about the Wallonian issue that so many people were concerned about. Council required unanimous approval. But the EU-Canada trade agreement is now in your house. It's Mm. now in the European Parliament. And if the European Parliament can't find its path to approve that agreement, Europe's ability to lead on trade will be tremendously weakened. I'm almost willing to take a bet that I think this House will, by February at least, have agreed on the trade agreement with Canada. I hope that you're right. There are at least two other important things that we're talking about when it comes to trade here in Brussels that the US is deeply involved in. That is the plurilateral trade agreements that we have right now, like the Environmental Goods Agreement and the Trade and Services Agreement. Right now, the US Congress have approved the fast track, which means that it's possible up until I 
think it's 2019 or 2020 or something like that to actually get these through easier through Congress. Do you think that there will be a focus on these or do you think that the US will be able to negotiate or keep on working on these agreements? The short answer is yes, they can. But, you know, you do have a new administration coming in and it's a new administration that hasn't been deeply engaged in trade policy and they will need to learn what's in these agreements and they'll need to make their evaluation of whether or not they're good for the United States. I think that they'll find that they are good. But these plurilateral agreements in Geneva, their problem is that even if the United States becomes a major backer of them, there are other issues. And there are some issues that are actually European issues. I was just about to say that, that I think that one could probably argue that the main problem with the trade and services agreement is that the European Union hasn't got their act together when it comes to data protection and therefore can't deliver on e-commerce. I even heard rumors that there were serious attempts to throw the European Union out of trade and services agreement due to the fact that we can't deliver. And the environmental goods agreement that should have been concluded yeah, last week or something like that got stuck mainly over bicycles, something that 22 European member states clearly opposed to reduce tariffs on. So again, just as TTIP, <laughs> maybe the areas that we are concerned with, instead of actually going across the Atlantic and trying to find a scapegoat in Washington, we should actually get our own act together and see what we can do to create momentum and to get these things moving. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You know, something like the data protection and trade and services. The WTO allows the EU to have its data protection laws. There's nothing in the WTO that says you can't have your data protection law. It does say that you can't have a data protection law that stops me from trading no. as such. That doesn't mean you don't protect the data. You do. Yeah. Everyone understands that there are laws in the United States, there are laws in Europe. What those laws are is not a problem. But you can't write an exception in a legal document that says, I can actually do whatever I want to do, mm. because then you don't have yeah. an international agreement. So the wording becomes important. Mm. Thank you very much, Peter. I must say that I'm a little bit more hopeful. My main conclusion is lean back, enjoy the show when watching the US, but focus on what we can do in Europe. And one final thing. Mm. You know, focus on what is the right narrative for trade. If trade actually makes people better off, and it is indisputable that it does because humanity has brought a billion people out of abject poverty because mm. of trade. That's a good thing for humanity. Mm. But we have a responsibility to help people in our own countries adjust to that. And we need to remember, as Swedish trade union leaders told me last time I was in Stockholm, that those people whose incomes are growing in China and Mexico and everything, they're buying a lot of our products yeah. now. So the growth in income elsewhere in the world is also good for our workers, but we need to think about how we do that and take advantage of it. Sounds like a good note to end off on. Thank you very much for being here, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah.